Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We are continuing uh, this morning our study of what it means to be in Christ as Paul helps us uh, delineate that in the book of Ephesians. And we come to a passage of Scripture this morning that is somewhat unique in that it's talking about a very specific uh, institution in our world. It's talking about marriage. And so when you, you start working on uh, this sermon, you realize that the congregation, not everyone's married. Uh, there are lots of folks in this room who are not yet old enough to be married. Uh, there are also folks in this room uh, who were married at one time and maybe a spouse has passed away or a divorce has occurred and they're no longer married. So I understand that we could be tempted to say, well, maybe this one isn't for me. You know, maybe I'm a high school student and I'm not, not quite ready to think about marriage yet. So this is maybe for older folks. Or maybe it's I've been married and I, I probably won't be married again. I, it's not for me. I want us to be careful not to fall into that trap. Uh, even though all of us do not uh, find ourselves married, uh, there are many of you that will be married in the future in this room. And so I would encourage you guys to listen with that idea in mind. What will it mean for me? What kind of person do I want to be when I enter into marriage, if that's uh, where I end up. But also, we all, all of us have friends and or family members who are married, uh, and this may give us the opportunity to, uh, to think about them and pray for them in that relationship. Uh, I want to say to folks who have been through divorce, uh, we, we're going to try to be very, very respectful and careful here. We're not trying to pour salt in a wound. Uh, we're not trying to stir up regrets. In fact, quite the opposite is true. What we're after this morning is the hope and the healing that comes from being in Christ and in his love for us, well, whatever station of life uh, we find ourselves. But we are going to be talking about marriage. And I keep saying we uh, because I'm not going to do this by myself. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to spend a few minutes after I read the passage talking to the men in the congregation about what this passage has to say to men. And then when I, uh, when I wrap that part up, my wife Cindy is going to come uh, and she is going to talk to the women about what this passage of scripture has meant in her life and what she believes it means for uh, Christian women collectively. And then we're going to wrap up, assuming we have enough time. Uh, we asked a couple weeks ago, maybe you've seen this in our emails, we asked you if you had any questions. and have got a bunch of questions in and we've been able to kind of sort through them and put them in different groups. And we've got a handful of questions that we'll try and answer uh, at the end of the service. So lots to do and a little bit of time to do it. Let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Hear the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." There is no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for uh, this letter to the the church in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago because it is a letter to us today. Uh, The word of God is still very living and active, and it, and it speaks into our hearts and minds into the, the deepest and most important places that we live. And Father, certainly the marriage relationship is, is one of those places that has a profound impact on it. It can, it can have a profoundly good impact or a profoundly negative impact, and, and maybe most marriages, it's a bit of both. So Father, we come to your word this morning, uh, living in a culture that speaks a very different language than what we just read. We live in a culture that, for the most part, would mock what we have just read, would find all kinds of problems with it, and would see it perhaps even as ridiculous. But Father, the world is fleeting, and man's wisdom is nothing compared to your wisdom. Your foolishness is smarter than our brilliance. So Father, we pray that you would give us teachable spirits this morning. Father, I pray for the men in this room that they would hear what you have to say about being husbands. Father, I pray the same for women, that they would hear what you have to say about being wives and that we would receive your teaching, not what I have to say, but not what Cindy has to say, but Lord, what you have to say, that which is eternal. We pray that you would burn it deep into our hearts and minds. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to what you want to teach us and help us understand this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't normally talk about the title of the sermon, but I'm going to this morning. The title of our sermon is Don't Do It Like We Did. Uh, We picked that very intentionally because uh, our marriage was an unmitigated disaster uh, for probably close to 10 years. We've been married almost 38 years now, and by God's grace, it is something profoundly different and profoundly better, although uh, we still can butt heads from time to time. But part of what we want to share with you this morning is our story. Uh, I think people could be under the misconception that pastors and their families don't have bigger problems or don't have as big a problems or that God maybe takes care of them a little bit more than he takes care of others because after all, they work directly for him. Uh, and that would be a, that would be a, a, a pretty a gross misrepresentation of the truth. The facts are Cindy and I were not ready to be married when we were 20 years old, uh, but we got married and, and then we began to do life together. And I'm going to share with you for my part the things that I brought to the marriage that were wrong. And then I'm going to look at this passage as the antidote for that kind of attitude and that kind of behavior. So I'm hoping that, uh, hoping you you won't find yourself quite as much uh, in the first part of the sermon as you will in the second. But I think my experience is not necessarily unusual uh, or out of line with what a lot of husbands bring to the table when they enter into marriage. The first way in which I would define my relationship with Cindy early on is insensitive. Uh, I didn't really ever stop to ask the question, uh, how do I love Cindy? In what ways will she experience my love? In fact, quite the opposite. I, 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 w- I was completely void of even thinking those kinds of thoughts. And I wanted to make sure Cindy knew uh, what was important to me, but I didn't necessarily 
return the favor. Uh, when we came back from our honeymoon, uh, I was working in a church and I was working with high school students and middle school students. I know it's hard to believe now, uh, but did that for about 13 years. And I remember telling Cindy, you know, at church, the, all, the, all the students at church kind of sit, as, as the pastor looks out, they kind of sit back over there uh, on the left-hand side of the pastor. And I'm going to have to sit with them. I'm going to need to get to know them and befriend them and hang out with them. So you may or may not be able to sit with me in church on Sundays because I'm hanging out with the kids. You can go and sit wherever you like. Ladies, how many of you would love going to church where your husband said, I don't necessarily want to sit with you? That's a pretty ugly, insensitive statement. Not only was I insensitive, but I also had a me first, selfish attitude. I was very good at thinking about what Tom wanted and about what Tom needed and about what would make Tom happy. The problem was, as good as I got at that, that left very little room for thinking about anybody else, in particular, what my wife might need or what my wife might want. I had very little interest in what she needed. I would also uh, look back on those years uh, and I would consider whatever love that I had from her. And I even, I even hesitate to use that word because I, I can't say that I practiced loving her very well, but certainly whatever it was that I was offering was very conditional in nature. I would say, I'll love Cindy if she treats me a certain way. But if she doesn't treat me a certain way, then she doesn't deserve my love and, and I'm not going to love her. Or I'll love Cindy when she begins to, to do the things that I want her to do. And as long as she starts first and gets it right, then I will share my love. And I never articulated those words in my mind. I never argued that with someone. Hey, let me tell you how I'm approaching marriage. I'm going to love my wife if she does certain things or when she does certain things. But the reality was that's exactly how I live my life. That was, in fact my creed. That led me to uh, another wonderful trait in my early years, and that was I was very, very, very irresponsible. I was irresponsible with our finances. I was irresponsible with our time. Uh, I never stopped to think about the amount of time that I needed to invest in the marriage. And while we didn't have a lot of money, we, we started out pretty, pretty meager. We did have funds. We, we, we weren't starving. There was a roof over our head. We could, we could afford our food and our, our clothing. We could afford to, to have the, the gas and the electricity on. But there wouldn't be, it wouldn't be odd for us to be sitting at the table and all of a sudden the electricity went off. And it didn't go off because there was a bad breaker switch. It went off because probably for the seventh time in the last two years, I just forgot to pay the bill. I just didn't get around to it. And it was very common for us to all of a sudden be sitting in the dark. Ladies, how would you like to live with a person you, did, you don't even know if your utilities are going to work or not? Not because your husband's strapped for cash, but he simply just didn't get around to doing that. That's extraordinarily irresponsible. The last way I'll describe my early years is a word that is still a challenge for me. I can still act this way, and that is manipulative. Uh, I, I can argue with the best of them. I can twist things. I can turn things to deflect them away from me and to have them focused on others. And so I did that with Scripture. And if I'm not careful to this day, every once in a while, Cindy will look at me and say, that was a pretty manipulative statement. That's a sin pattern in my life of which I need to be very aware. But I took it to an art form when we were first married. When I was six years old, I could recite the books of the Bible backwards and forwards. 
I showed up at seminary and took the English Bible placement exam without studying it and got almost 100 on it. I, I know the Bible backwards and forwards, but I wasn't living as a son of God who loved his wife. So I would use the Bible as, as my tool to, to berate Cindy, to tell her why she was wrong, why it was always, always, always her fault. Insensitivity, selfishness, conditional love, irresponsibility, irresponsible and manipulative. Sounds like a recipe for a glorious marriage, does it not? That's why towards the end of the fourth year of our marriage, uh, I almost uh, was killed with a baked potato. (laughs) This is a true story. Uh, I came home when I felt like coming home. At the time, I felt like coming home. It was probably three hours at least later than what I said I would be home, but I didn't matter to me. And I walked in and Cindy was in our little duplex at the time and there was a nice little dinner uh, on a plate and in the middle of that was a nice big juicy glorious baked potato like the one you see on the screen right there, but her hand was right behind the plate. And as soon as I came in the door and turned to look at her, she hurled it at me. And she's an athlete. She went to school on a college scholarship for volleyball. And she almost killed me with a baked potato. (laughs) Some would argue it might have been better had she been successful. Cindy was desperate. Cindy was lonely. Cindy did not have a husband. She lived with a bully who was prideful and arrogant and completely void of the notion that he should serve her in any way. I'm not proud of that story, but I'm not afraid to tell it because God is the one and the only one who can change a person like that. The power of the Spirit of God, the power of the Word of God is the only antidote for that kind of evil in a person's heart. And that's exactly what it was. It was evil. While I worked at a church and told high school students and middle school students zealously about the Lord Jesus. That was Tom Ricks. What was the hope? Well, we come to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and I want to point out for you what I believe is the antidote to that kind of sin pattern in a person's life. So gentlemen, what scripture calls us to is something radically different than I just described. The first thing that this passage says is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the umbrella statement. We're going to get to the specifics in just a moment. But the the notion here is that my love for my wife is a reflection of how Jesus loves the church. In fact, later on, Paul says what I'm talking about in all of this is how Christ loves his church. How does Jesus love his church unconditionally? selflessly. He serves his church. He prepares his church to be his bride, you read later on in this text. Is that the umbrella with which you're approaching your marriage? Is that the umbrella with which I am approaching my marriage? That, that my, my highest calling below following the Lord Jesus is loving my wife the way Jesus loves me. Well, what does that look like? What, what exactly, if it plays itself out according to this passage, what will I start to see? We'll look at the rest of verse five. Love the church and gave himself up for her. There was no price that was too high to pay, including his life on the cross for your sins and for my sins in order that we could become the spotless, blemish-free bride of Christ. It was a complete disregard for his own personal safety If by giving up that safety, he could win his bride for himself. 
When's the last time I looked at my marriage and I said, there's no price that's too high to pay to love her well? How many mornings do I get out of bed and say, I need to give myself up for Cindy and for our relationship? Verse 28 plays this out even a little bit further when Paul goes on to say, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he's hearkening back to the the Levitical law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. My closest neighbor is my wife. My closest neighbor is the person with whom I share a home and share a life. Do I love myself by seeking to love Cindy well? In verse 29, Paul, and I'm really flying through this uh, because we, we've got just a little bit of time. We'll, we'll put this information out on the web this week so you can go back and look at it if you want. But in verse 29, Paul uses two words to describe how we should behave. No one ever hated his flesh but nourishes it. The notion here is that I'm actually going to give sustenance. My attitude, my thoughts, my words, my actions are going to bring strength to our marriage. I'm going to do things. I'm going to, I'm going to use language. I'm going to, to be thoughtful about ways in which I can build us up. That nourishment can come. That our marriage is stronger and healthier because I'm being intentional about loving my wife. And then he uses a second word, which I think besides grace is my favorite word in all of Scripture. He cherishes. That word cherishes an amazingly powerful word. It means to protect, but it means much, much more than that. It means to care for, but it means much more than that. To hold as dearest a deep and abiding affection and devotion. I think the greatest need in a wife's relationship with her husband is that word right there. It's summed up in that word cherish. Now, women feel cherished in different ways. Some people like to receive small gifts every now and then. Other people like to receive a hug or words of affirmation. If you're married and you haven't read the book, The Five Love Languages, you ought to read it. It's a very practical, down-to-earth, great picture of, of how people experience love. We tend to love in the way we want to be loved in return. The problem is Cindy and I are different. So if I uh, take that approach, I'm going to feel like I'm doing a great job and she may not feel any love at all. So as her servant, I'm going to discover how to cherish her and then I'm going to live with that kind of devotion in my life and in my attitude and in my actions towards her. She knows that second to the Lord Jesus, she's the most important person in my life. I'll die for her if I need to. She's that important to me, that notion of cherishing. And then Paul takes us back not only to the Levitical law, but but my last observation here is in verse 31, he takes us back to to the creation itself. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting uh, Genesis chapter two and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's a sense here of of a laser focus of understanding that there are no other options that all of my resources, all of my strength is dedicated to honoring the Lord Jesus by holding fast to Cindy. That's the antidote to all of the things that I mentioned earlier. And by God's grace, I, I, I started probably 10 years into our marriage very slowly at first, and now maybe with a, with a little bit more speed and a little bit more consistency, I'm growing in all of these things. 
I'm actually seeing a different marriage than, than what the marriage I described to you is not the marriage in which I live now uh, some 28 years after we began to turn a corner. And my attitude and my attention is now focused on looking in the mirror and asking that question first. Tom, how are you doing at Love and Cindy? Because I believe, uh, honestly, Cindy has the harder role. I believe Cindy has the tougher command in this passage. That may not be true. I might be wrong with that. But it can't possibly be easy to submit your will to another person, to respect that person as you respect the Lord. That, that one of the ways Je- that Cindy trusts Jesus is by trusting Tom. That is a profound step of faith. But it's my joyful opportunity to try to make that role easier for her, to try to make that role a joy in her life. All righty, girlfriend, your turn. I don't normally get done a sermon that way. <laughs> Hi. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm going to start by talking about what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about an abusive situation. I grew up in an abusive home with a stepfather who physically and emotionally abused my mom, and we've lived in fear, and he treated her like a child, and I'm not talking about misusing this verse in that way. I'm not talking about division of household responsibilities, who does the finances, who's better at this or that. I think that we as couples figure that out, and that that this is not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm also not talking about equality. I'm not talking about the wife being less equal or less important than the husband, because that we're not, not, not before God, okay? I'm talking about a God-given role in marriage where the husband is the head of the household and is held responsible before God for his leadership. I would define submit as to accept or to yield to and respect as to hold in high regard to value or appreciate. Now, I think a lot of us women desire the same thing. Down deep inside, we want a strong leader. We want someone who protects us, who provides for us, who is so in tune with our needs and values our opinions and is prayer- prayerfully makes wise decisions. I know that's what I wanted. Um, and yet there's tension. Why is there tension? First of all, the very word submission makes me rebellious. I have that, my natural feel at hearing that word is to feel a little bit rebellious, okay? I also have fears. I have fears about being stepped on or controlled, probably because of my background. I also buy into the world's idea that my happiness should be the most important thing. We hear that all the time, right? That we've got to demand our rights and that it's all about our happiness. Um... And I can get stuck on if you don't respect me or you haven't earned that respect. I mean, sorry, if you don't love me or you haven't earned that, you haven't earned my respect. So I get stuck there. I get stuck with, I'm going to wait until you do your part before I do my part. And I see not only in my own life, but in in other marriages um, where the husband shuts down because maybe the wife is so critical, never feels I can get 
he can really be a leader and he just makes the peace and lets the wife take do whatever she wants to and there continues to be a, more of a loss of respect and less of leadership or or they argue all the time. Well, Tom and I were the couple that argued all the time. We are both very stubborn. We are very competitive. We want to win all the time, both of us. And we came into marriage at 22. Um, Tom introduced me to marital bliss on, in a trailer <laughs> at the double wide at the Rock City Campground, which is where we lived, because we couldn't find any place to rent in a very wealthy area of Lookout Mountain. Um, we got married in November. One of the first couple things happened. Uh, first week we were married, Tom looked at me and said, I, you, I, you, I don't want you to drive after dark to the mall. What? I've been driving since I'm 16. Nobody's going to tell me when I can drive to the mall. Like, no, that's not going to happen, right? And, and, and we got married and we had, I got bronchitis. And within the same time that I had a horrible case of bronchitis, we had this ice storm. And at the double wide, we lost electricity and power for two weeks. So Tom knew people in the church and he would pop into their houses and take showers. And I would load up our dishes every night and go to the shower at the college gymnasium and shower and wash my dishes in the shower, okay? And I kept thinking, it can't get worse. It did. We argued about everything. We argued, we one time argued over whose turn it was to take out the trash, and we let 16 huge bags of garbage pile up on the porch because neither one of us were going to back down, right? That's, that's, that's who we were. <laughs> everything was a constant argument. And I felt, I felt very lonely. I felt like Tom was living like he did in college. Um, and I, 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 I was getting desperate. Um, I felt alone. I was starting to get resentful. I felt like I'd married the wrong person. <clears throat> and so I'm a big reader. So what I started doing is I started reading a lot of Christian books about marriage and uh, learning a lot, absorbing scripture. And I would try and share these things with Tom, and it didn't go over very well. And he probably because I wasn't very delightful to be with. And the way I approached it was not delightful. Um, it was actually nagging. It was criticize, criticizing and nagging all the time. Um, and I started to shut down. I, I, I just got that, I, I, I just felt so resentful. Um, we went 10 years this way. Not three to six months. We went 10 years this way. And I could tell you, I studied this for 10 years. I could tell you everything that Tom did wrong. Everything. It wasn't until after we moved to St. Louis and I had a traumatic birth of our third child that I had a time of a God and me time. And God showed me two things. The first thing was, you are not the Holy Spirit, Cindy Ricks. Your title is not Junior Holy Spirit. It is not your job to change or fix your husband. Okay? And that was news to me. I thought that's why I was putting God's name in Tom's life. God put me in his life to, to do that. And so I stopped. I, I, I took a period of time to just reflect. And the second thing was I began to look at my sin 
Now, I knew I had sin, but I always excused it. Like, I'm angry, but it's because Tom makes me angry. You know, there was always a reason for why. And, and I never really looked in, and saw all the weeds in my own backyard on my side of the fence. And an and interesting ha- thing happens through that process. It breaks you. And you become very aware that if God can forgive you for the things in your life, you know what? You can, can forgive your husband. He's struggling with his own sin. His sin is not greater than yours. And there's enough that God wants you to work on in your own life that you can focus in on that, what God is trying to do in your own life. And Tom, at the time, kind of felt like it was this uh, coldness. He didn't know what to do with it. I'm, I'm, that shows you how much I nagged. I just, he, I just stopped, and he didn't know what, really what to do with it. And that is when God began to work in my husband's life. It's when I got out of the way. Um... I look back, and I see, I'm going to put out what I see as my disrespect and some things that I still struggle with, and I've put them in two categories because this is how I think. I put them as sins of the tongue and sins of attitude, Um, and the Bible says that those actually go hand in hand, that often what flows out of your mouth is what's in your heart, right? So my sins of the tongue would be to criticize. He couldn't do anything right. Even when he attempted, like, why can't you get folding the towels right? I mean, we do it the same way every time. Why can't you ever get that right, right? Nagging, repeating stuff over and over and over. And the Bible actually says in Proverbs that a nagging wife is like the dripping of a leaking roof in a rainstorm. Stopping her is like trying to stop the wind. It's like trying to grab hold of oil. Do any of us want to be known that way? I know I did not. That was was something that really hit me hard, that that's who I had become. Tone of voice. I can have a very sharp tone of voice and a very know-it-all tone of voice. Always trying to correct or point out faults, how to fix something, how to correct something. And then a constant reminder of past failures or hurts. I held a record. You did something over and over, I was going to let you know how many times you did it and how much it hurt each time. And then teasing or sarcasm. I got to tell you, I love to tease. I think it should be one of the uh, love languages. Right, Russ? You there with me? Um, however, I can tease at the expense of my husband to get a laugh, get everybody think think it's funny, and, and I'm not always kind. And so that's one of the ways that I can show disrespect. Attitude. I had a critical spirit. I don't think back in those days... Tom could have done anything right. I just had a critical spirit. Um, ignore or disregard. I don't have to say anything back, but he could be asking me to do something, and I can decide I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to disregard it. That's disrespect. <clears throat> Self-righteous. My way is the only way. Man, I carry that around all the time. <clears throat> Self-serving. I don't need to do my part unless he does his part. I I don't need to respect him. He needs to earn it. I'm not going to respect him until he loves me the way I'm supposed to. He gets stuck there, obviously, 10 years. Um, Take over. Try and control. Okay? If he's not going to do what I want him to do or need him to do. You know, so often it's, we may have a husband who's trying to be a leader, but because they're not not doing it the way we want them to, it's easy for us to feel like, oh, well, we got to take over because our way is the right way, right? And then unforgiving, 
just to bring up those. In my, in my, my attitude was unforgiving. I was, I was going to keep account and hold, hold grudge. Um, so what are the consequences for that kind of disrespect? For me, I felt like it killed the desire for my husband to lead. I, I, I felt like it created more frustration with him. I had a frustrated husband. Um, <clears throat> it was a poor, poor role model for our kids. And then again, I, I tried to take over and take a place that I had no business taking. It was not godly. <clears throat> so what does respect look like? Well, with the tongue, it's encouraging. It's looking for things that you can encourage. And I always have the same piece of advice to every couple getting ready to get married. You have a lot to do with the kind of leader that your husband becomes. I'm not talking about whether they're quiet or outspoken. But you can either tear that down or you can encourage it. Because the kind of leader your husband can be in 20 years is so much different than what you're looking at in your 20s. But you're going to have a lot to do with that. Or you can have a lot to do with that. Um, saying thank you. I mean, how easy is that? Okay, yes, that we share responsibilities for the kids, but thank you for watching the kids so I could go out this afternoon. Thank you for unloading the dishwasher. I appreciate it. Healthy communication, tone of voice, and timing. Okay, I was horrible at this. Okay, I was ready to blast Tom when he walked in the door. It, I didn't. It didn't matter what his day looked like or what he was stressed out about. And I often didn't I was not aware of my tone of voice. Um, so, so respect would be having that healthy communication, watching your tone of voice, not bringing up past hurts, being mindful of what's going on. Might not be the best time at a family dinner to bring up finances, okay? There's kids in the room, and they're, it's just not a good time, but being mindful of that. And asking for forgiveness, not saying I'm sorry. We so often, what well, we teach our kids even, just go, you say you're sorry, but we don't often really ask what they're really feel, feeling in their hearts, but asking for forgiveness, specifically asking for forgiveness when you know you've hurt your, when I know I've hurt him or, or haven't been respectful. Um, attitude, having a thankful attitude, you know, remembering why I married him and looking for the things that he does well and being thankful for that. Um, having a humble willingness to learn to communicate and hear criticism. One of the things we started doing was about once a month, we would go out to dinner and we would ask each other, how are we doing at this? And you have to be willing to hear your spouse say, this is how I felt when you did that. That's how I learned that my, my teasing hurt, actually hurt his feelings. I thought it was just my love language. Um, <laughs> but be willing to go out and have, build that healthy communication um, when you're not, it's not the heat of the moment. Um, having a forgiving heart. Letting go of the small stuff. Who cares how the towels are folded? Or whose turn it is to take out the garbage. I look back at the stuff we fought over. How silly most of it was. It was over small stuff. Let the small stuff go. It just doesn't matter that much. Um, stop trying to fix or control. Realizing that failure might be a God, part of God's plan. This is a hard for, one for us women. Whether it's with our husbands or our kids, we don't want to see them fail. And even if we can see, you know, and we've voiced 
how we feel and, and, and we might see how this is going to end up or whatever. You know what? That might be how God teaches your husband what, he's supposed, what, what he wants him to learn. It might be through failure. It is for me in my own life. It's often been the times that I fail that I really learn. So get out of the way. Be the cheerleader. Watch what God's doing in your spouse's life and cheer them on, but don't try and fix or prevent that struggle. <clears throat> And we're really trusting in God's plan, right? There's, you're really trusting that God has put this man in your life and he's go, it's supposed to be the, the leader and he may not do everything right or the way you want him to, but it's God's plan that you respect him. And even if he's not loving you the way you feel like you need and, and certainly is biblical, that you still are trusting that you're going to respect because you're going to trust God's plan in your marriage. And it actually is a wonderful plan. When I respect Tom the way I should, I think I'm easier to love. And when he cherishes me the way that I love to be cherished, it's easier for me to respect him. Thank you. <clears throat> oh, <laughs> my knee almost gave out. All righty. So, uh, as we said, we, we collected over the last week or so a whole bunch of questions, and we're not going to get to all of them, but we, I, think we, I think we had six on our list that we kind of thought summed up a lot of really good questions. So, if your specific one didn't get in here, and if, it, and if we didn't come anywhere near covering it, you know, grab me after the service or send me an email uh, and let me know. We'd be more than happy to get together and chat. So, you're taking the first one. Describe the role of friends in your marriage. So, friends have been huge. Being in a small group with a, a older folks that I have that we've been able to model, ask questions, it's been very helpful. It's been very helpful at times in both of our lives to have mentors, and it's and I would say with your own with your with your friends that you hang out with, if you're going to vent, ladies especially, if you're going to vent, make sure it's a person that can speak into your life with wisdom and that they love your husband as much as they love you. And I would add uh, for the guys, make sure you have someone in your life that can call you out when they see something's not quite going right. So having friends that say, I'm all for your marriage and it looks like when you do this, it's problematic for your marriage. Let's talk about that. And they're not bringing it up because they want to, because they want to squish you and they want to point out how bad you are. They're bringing it up because they love you and they really want your marriage to be successful. And so if that's going to happen, we have to be able to have those teachable moments. And you need to make sure you've got at least one or two guys in your life. Maybe they're a little bit older, but you want to make sure you give a couple people permission to say, hey, call me out when I'm, you know, if I, if I look like I'm kind of making a knucklehead move here, don't hesitate to, to let me know. Second question is, what if you're married uh, the wrong person and you have no reason for biblical divorce, but you are not happy? There's a lot in that question, and we, and we had several questions that kind of mirrored this one, but we thought that was uh, one that summed it up best. So a couple things I'll say here, and I, and I want to say this very respectfully. Uh, both of us in the first 10 years of our marriage probably had dozens of times where we would have said that's exactly, that's exactly right. Uh, I've married the wrong person for a whole host of reasons. The problem with that biblically is that we don't know the beginning from the end. We are finite and God is infinite. And I cannot begin to say something, uh, you know, this person is the right person or the wrong person because I don't know what God's going to do. I can say it's a hard person 
to be married to. I could say it's almost an impossible person to be married to. But as Cindy said earlier, part of the journey is the difficult moments that God uses to deepen our faith. So again, we're not talking about someone who's being abused. We're not talking, if, if someone's being physically abused, emotionally abused, we're not talking about that. But the end result and the best place to be is not to be in a place that the world defines as happy. The best and safest place for you and me to be is when we're following the Lord Jesus and when we're exhibiting trust in him. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's simple. But we, we continue to follow Christ, even in those moments when they're difficult, trusting that he loves us more than we even love ourselves or love one another. And he knows infinitely more than we do. So that's, that's a tough one. I hope that helps. How often do you pray together as a couple? So we pray every day together. And I'm going to be honest with you. We don't always pray on Saturdays. Oh, that might be true. Um, <laughs> also, I'm usually half asleep. Tom does most of the praying. Um, <laughs> I'm the morning person. You get nobody talk to you at 530 in the morning. Call me. I'm, I'm your guy. I'm up. I'm ready to go. No, in, in, in all seriousness, we did not always pray together. And when we started, it was awkward and it will feel awkward. Um, but it keep doing it. It will start to be part of your daily routine and, and it will be very life giving. And I would say, men, we take the lead on this. Uh, if you've been married two months or you've been married 25 years, doesn't matter. If you've never prayed with your wife, you can start that today. Uh, I promise you, more than likely, there's a 95% chance if you, uh, you do this for the first time, it'll feel like your left shoe's on your right foot and your right shoe's on your left foot. It will feel awkward. It will feel strange. But keep doing it. And the 10th time in, it will probably feel just as awkward and just as strange, but somewhere between 10 and 30 or 40, it starts to become part of your life. And it ends up being important to you. It ends up being something that gives, as Cindy said, it gives your marriage life and it becomes something that is is central to who you are as a couple. But I think it's our responsibility to to jump in and take the lead on that right off the bat. That's not to say you couldn't pray when you wake up first thing in the morning. I'd be happy for you to do that too. Uh, next question. How do you handle the mental load uh, that often falls on mothers? So doctor's appointments, buying new clothes, extracurricular activities, family schedules, etc. And we are in a, usually a two job, both spouses work. That needs to be shared. That should not just be considered all a wife's duty. Um, and that's a way of feeling cherished. It's having your husband say, what can I help with for this week? How, how, how can I help you out here? And, and I, yeah, I agree with that 100%. I told a story earlier uh, about a good friend of ours uh, in, in uh, a couple that we knew. And they loved to grill out. Uh, they would grill like three, four nights a week on their, on their back porch. And their grill broke. Uh, something went wrong with it. And she was telling us the story. She said her husband on a Saturday got up early and took the whole thing apart and figured out what was wrong with it and fixed it and put it back together. And then she said this, that's the sexiest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and at that point, the men in the group are going, I'm not following. I'm very, very confused about what she said. What she was saying was, I felt cherished. He knows how much I enjoy grilling. He gave his whole day for me. So, gentlemen, we're not acting very gentlemanly. We're not loving the way we ought to love. We're not cherishing the way we ought to cherish when we just say, you know, honey, you're going to take care of all that uh, because I'm too busy or I I have other things that that I have to do. Let me give you a hint, gentlemen. Never say you're babysitting for your children. 
A babysitter is a person who didn't have anything to do with bringing them into the world, uh, and you did. They're your kids as much as they're your wife's kids. So jump in here, roll up your sleeves, and, and be a servant partner uh, in that kind of activity. Next question. What do you do when the husband is misusing the Bible to bully or abuse his wife? Again, I, I grew up with that. My stepfather actually went to seminary, <clears throat> knew scripture, and behind closed doors was just a monster. Um, so I would say with any kind of abuse, if you need to seek counseling, it's probably not going to get better and, you, and, and it needs help. And I would uh, encourage you that uh, we really strive hard. And when I say we, the pastors and the elders of Green Tree Community Church, we want to create a safe environment for, for everybody at Green Tree. And you can be in a situation where you're being bullied, where you're being abused, and you're not sure where to turn. Uh, and I want you to know that you can reach out to us. You can reach out to any of the pastors. You can reach out to any of the elders, uh, our ministry directors, and we will listen carefully. And we will, we will enter into that situation with you. It doesn't mean we won't ask you hard questions. It doesn't mean we won't vet it. We will, uh, because we don't just assume whoever walks in that they've got it exactly right. But we want to make sure that we create an environment uh, that is safe for everyone. So if you're in that, that spot, you're not by yourself, uh, let us know and we will, we will enter in uh, to that space with you. What do you do if your husband is not a spiritual leader at all? So I think you start with prayer and you get people around you to pray and you focus in on what you're supposed to be doing because you're, you're really going to trust God's plan. Um, and that may be what wins your husband over. Good answer. That was our last one, right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we're, we're not coming to uh, think and talk about Tom and Cindy's opinions, but Lord, hopefully everything we've said is founded in your word. And if it hasn't been, Lord, help us forget it immediately. But Father, we do praise you that you gave us this passage of scripture. Uh, even if the world wants to mock us because we believe it, Lord, we know it's true because it's your gift to us. Father, I pray for every husband in this room and every man who will be a husband someday that we would, we would learn from our own experience with you and your unconditional love for us what it means to love our wives the way you have loved us. Father, I pray for every, every woman in this room who's a wife or will be someday, Lord, that you would, you would provide godly husbands uh, that, that would be a partnership from day one, but also, Lord, that, that their faith and their trust would be in you. Uh, and that they can rest in you even at times when I know every husband is going to fail. Uh, when, we, when we fall short, that, that they can rest in you and know that uh, your love and your grace is sufficient. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.